This episode of AHLA Speaking of Health Law is brought to you by AHLA members and donors like you. For more information, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org. Hello, I am Brian Dean Abramson, author of the Vaccine Law Treaties, uh, Vaccine Vaccination and Immunization Law. Uh, And I am here today with Denise M. Hill, who is a professor at the Drake University School of Public Health and author of the recently released Vaccination Mandates in the Healthcare Workplace, which is an absolute delight to read from my perspective, uh, but also a very thorough examination of the requirements and uh, both the obligations and the abilities of employers in the healthcare workplace to mandate vaccination for their employees. Um, Denise, let me start by asking, when you advise a client who's thinking about mandating a vaccination for their employees, and of course, in this day and age, thinking about mandating COVID-19 vaccination, and they haven't decided whether they should or shouldn't institute such a mandate, what, what advice do you give them? What factors do you put into to, uh, deciding whether they should or advising whether they should? You know, when it really comes down to vaccines generally, um, I think there's always a political component, but as everyone listening is a, well aware uh, with COVID-19 and, and going through the emergency use authorization dur- during a global pandemic, that's uh, gone to a whole new level. So, um, but typically when I'm advising uh, employers about those is to really look to the science, um, to look to the particulars of Um, what type of uh, setting they're in. So long-term care, home health, hospital, et cetera, it's going to obviously be different just as it would for an employer in uh, a small boutique versus a a large outside venue as well. So of course, our audience is in the healthcare industry. So within that uh, scope, what for their organization makes sense in terms of what is required to meet their legal and ethical obligations. So first of all, um, of course, we have obligations to those who we serve as part of our mission. Um, in many cases, those are medically fragile individuals. Uh, they may be children. Um, you know, it, it's going to depend a lot on uh, who that audience is and what their obligations are there. Within OSHA, of course, we have obligations, of course, to fellow employees. Um, and so uh, the um, OSHA, federal OSHA law requires that employers do an assessment of what their workplace requires. And so they're going to look at what is required to keep their workplace safe and relative to a specific uh, disease, et cetera. Also, because those employees may be a bridge um, to those who are actually um, being served, they're also going to look at their legal liability in terms of, especially with hospitals, Um, hospital-acquired infections and um, their liability to vendors, visitors, others. Um, You know, we know that some uh, diseases that we get immunized for um, tend to be ones that uh, for the larger public, because we have such great herd immunity like measles and so forth, we don't tend to have large outbreaks unless we're in certain localities or serve certain types of uh, patients. Um, But when it comes to COVID-19, um, we're, we're in a whole new ball game. So of course, uh, we can chat a little more about that. One of the uh, biggest objections that has tended to be raised to COVID-19 vaccination mandates is the fact that 
the vaccines have been approved under an emergency use authorization. Um, the courts have spoken to that recently. What what is the what is the sort of current situation with respect to objections on that basis? I think there's been a lot of misunderstanding among the public. Um, some of it uh, intentional by folks who have agendas and some just by, by the fact that we do have a history of um, sometimes having abuses in terms of um, things that aren't approved yet um, and even those that are. So there is some public mistrust that comes into play. But the emergency use authorization um, process was put in place for purposes just like this, um, where either a um, drug or a medication or medical equipment is proven to be so effective that it doesn't make sense to go through the full process before people can start benefiting from it. Or in an emergent situation where like right now we have a novel virus, uh, in this case, a coronavirus, that is um, millions of people around the world and is easily transmissible. So in, in this particular case, there's still a significant process that has to um, be used to um, allow that to be authorized for use uh, since the FDA has not officially approved it and gone through its normal process. Um, and so that's been allowed for many years. In fact, uh, the um, the very tests that we've been taking for COVID-19 um, were approved for use under that process. Now, something that I think the media and others have failed to really focus on is that the federal government, because of issues related to um, anthrax vaccine and other things in the past, really wanted to ensure that there was a large measure of public trust. So because of that, they didn't just uh, do an emergency use authorization process as required by the law, which ensures it's safe enough um, and that the benefit is good enough to go ahead and, and start utilizing it. But they went further. They actually said before December of last year when they, they authorized uh, Pfizer, Moderna, and then eventually the, the J&J Janssen uh, vaccine, that it needed to pass what's called emergency use plus authorization. And this plus authorization means that the standard is even higher than the law requires. Um, basically, it's, it's just cutting out a lot of the red tape that we typically see. And as I talk to clients, as I talk to uh, people who are maybe vaccine hesitant, as they start to understand that there was this emergency use authorization plus process utilized, um, they become more comfortable that they don't need to wait uh, to be vaccinated until the full approval. Although we're hoping in the next uh, couple of weeks, we will have some full approval and that that will help to um, quell some concerns among those who are vaccine hesitant. And in the interim, courts that have addressed the issue, they've, they've looked to this EUA plus uh, authorization status uh, as one of the bases for saying that, that these vaccines can be mandated, yes? Absolutely. And, and I think they recognize and um, many of us recognize that even far and above the research that would happen under the FDA approval process, we have millions and millions of people across our country and depending on the vaccine across the world that have successfully utilized uh, these vaccines. And the side effects are so minimal. The, uh, you know, it's so safe and so effective that I think it's even surprised, um, you know, those who are in the industry. Um, in fact, I've said to people, this is the way a lot of our vaccines and medicines will be used in the future. And that the risk is, is safer than most over-the-counter uh, drugs that we use every day. 
Um, so I think that um, there is a lot of confusion, but legally we're on very strong footing that even though this was passed by emergency use authorization, um, it is safe and um, it is effective. And, um, and, and if that's challenged in court, I think courts will uphold in this particular case. Now, say you have a client who has decided that they're going to mandate vaccination for their employees. Uh, once they cross the threshold of making that decision, what do you tell them um, that they need to do in terms of structuring that mandate, um, in terms of setting up uh, provisions to deal with people who don't want to be vaccinated or who assert that they have um, reasons under the law by which they should be exempt from a vaccination? Um, what, is the, what is the sort of advice that you would give them in those circumstances? Yeah, you know, um, one of the things that's happened in the interim from when I submitted the, the manuscript for my book um, back mm -hmm. late this spring and now is that very recently, um, 50, I think, plus health care organizations, the American Health Association, the American Medical Association, the American Nurse Association, uh, leading edge in long-term care, um, all of the professional organizations have said we should be mandating or requiring that people uh, in healthcare organizations are, are vaccinated. And whether they're not vaccinated, then we need to have other um, safety protocols in place. Um, so because of that, we definitely, um, I think should feel very comfortable that there's wide ranging support and that we should be taking that very seriously. Once again, though, as an employer, even in the healthcare setting, they should look at their individual organization and uh, work with their advisors to decide, is this exactly what I should have? Um, and then once they've decided, like you said, that they want to move forward, the next part is, what are we requiring? Uh, what are we going to put into our policies? How are we going to enforce this? Um, what do certain things mean? How are we going to recognize um, and then apply medical exemptions for people who are uh, uh, contraindicated for this. How are we going to treat people who have a natural immunity um, already to the vaccine because they've had COVID um, or maybe it's not even suggested yet because it's so recent. Um, and of course, then the religious exemptions as well. Um, one of the things that a recent California decision, and this is in the employment setting, uh, came down with was that, in fact, it wasn't a mandate. Um, so I think one of the questions is, is what we're, we're putting in place really a mandate? Is it that we're requiring um, people to all you know, wear masks and be regularly um, tested and so forth? Um, and if they are already vaccinated, they may be exempt from some of those requirements, maybe not all in light of the new CDC guidance on being masked, even if you are exempt. Um, but um, because of that, we have a lot of, um, you know, questions about, is it actually a mandate? So is it a mandate? Of course, mandates don't mean we hold uh, anyone down and actually, you know, jab them in the arm, as some might suggest, um, but we do set those conditions of employment. Um, and as part of setting those conditions of employment, then we can determine whether or not we're going to have vaccines as an exception or whether we're going to require vaccines. And um, if somebody doesn't comply by a certain date or fit with an exemption, then they will lose their job or go on furlough or um, uh, you know, lose access to the premises, et cetera. 
Um, and so you wouldn't need to decide, you know, is this technically a mandate? Is this um, something short of a mandate? Um, when I've been doing a lot of interviews lately, uh, some of the newscasters have been asking me, so is this a loophole? And I would say it's not a loophole. I would just say that um, it's a different way to look at it within the policy. And whether it's a mandate, obviously a mandate is stronger. Um, but either way, the law has been very clear, um, both in the healthcare setting with a recent um, uh, case that came down, there was a motion to dismiss for uh, the Houston medical case. I'm sure all everyone listening is familiar with that, uh, where the court said, no, uh, the healthcare employer has, even though people have a 14th Amendment right to um, not have unwanted medical interventions, uh, the 14th Amendment also allows for employers and government entities to take steps to protect themselves and their entity. And this was also reinforced by um, a recent uh, Indiana case, the Claussen case, where they had students in this case, although the policy applied also to employees, um, were saying that uh, it was, um, it was um, unconstitutional for them to be um, required to have vaccination or be subject to these types of requirements. Um, interestingly, that was just upheld uh, at the appellate level um, the day before yesterday. Um, so um, now we have the highest level of um, precedent setting specific to um, COVID-19 and the right of employers. So we have the Houston case at the district level that reinforces specific to healthcare, and we also have um, the educational setting. Um, in all of the cases that we've seen, um, there has been by the courts uh, a, a recognition that um, the importance of we're in a declared emergency, national public health emergency, the global pandemic, that in this setting, there is definitely the right of employers to make those determinations. So I think any employer who's decided to move forward should feel very confident that whatever they do will be upheld. Um, they may encounter a lawsuit, although hopefully some of these that are already in play will kind of cut back on that concern that some hospitals may have. Um, they also um, need to be thinking about um, their requirements for uh, working with employees and trying to get employees involved. Um, I'll let you ask another question, Brian, but then I have a few more things I can add to. Well, the one thing that uh, had come to my mind was that there are a number of states uh, where the state government, um, through an executive order or through some legislation, has sought to limit the ability, uh, not, not necessarily of employers to, to mandate COVID vaccination, but certainly uh, to limit the ability of businesses to require that uh, customers or patrons show that they are vaccinated in order to patronize that business. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are in terms of the fact that there does seem to be a politicization of the issue and kind of a divide where there are states that are um, clearly more favorable to vaccination and vaccination mandates and, and, and pushing those at the state level um, and states that are uh, more reticent towards those and kind of uh, pushing against them at the state level and how that may affect employers and healthcare employers going forward. One thing that has not changed since the time that uh, I submitted the book is the uh, 
how politicized um, this issue that really isn't political. Um, unfortunately, that's been the case. And as it's been uh, considered to be more and more political, uh, we have had uh, state leaders and some and some states, including my uh, state of Iowa, that have passed legislation. I believe there's 12 to 14 right now that have passed it. Uh, Hawaii is the one that has um, actually a um, what they're terming a vaccine passport process in place, and they do have a mandate. Um, many states it's permissible um, and an open question. And then uh, I think 40 states have introduced legislation, at least my last count. Um, the biggest point here is that um, as a, a wise young man who knows a lot about vaccines and vaccine law once told me, no vaccine mandate or related law is equal. And so that's very true. Uh, some states, it applies uh, across the board um, to any business in the state. Um, in some cases, it carves out healthcare as an exception or it carves out employees uh, in the state. Um, most of these are under the um, title of banning vaccine passports. The idea being that, and I talked a bit in the book about this, although it's certainly grown in prevalence since then, but um, the idea being that uh, they don't want people being treated as second-class citizens because they uh, chose not to be vaccinated and, or to, in some cases, they, they make it akin to uh, participating in uh, um, medical research um, or apartheid, I even saw. Um, but what, what they're saying is that um, no one can do it. Um, the enforcement that they have at the state level, even though the police powers do typically defer to the state for purposes of health and safety and police powers, um, the, the primary tool that they use is uh, leverage of state and uh, government funds, um, so grants and so forth. Um, my own university is not uh, at the present time mandating vaccinations because uh, they receive a lot of federal funds for our students as a private university and nonprofit. Um, and so uh, they're having to evaluate that impact in comparison with their concerns about student and faculty safety. Um, so I think it's really important that you will look at what is happening in your state law. At the same time, um, I think ultimately with, even if you're, you're state does not uh, differentiate or carve out healthcare, um, I would encourage you to do uh, what you need to do for your organization. Um, and um, so it, it's certainly a live consideration, especially for public hospitals. Um, I, I, you know, they'll have to evaluate that along with their advisors. And, and recently, uh, the governor of Arkansas, for example, has regretted that uh, he signed into law a ban on mask mandates. So um, it's certainly conceivable and indeed foreseeable um, that some of these states that have passed restrictions on uh, vaccination passports or have placed limitations that are sort of broadly worded that could sweep in employer-employee relations, uh, they may come to regret that and reverse course on that. I, I certainly think that's a possibility. And um, uh, you know, I think that this new Delta variant has uh, brought a whole new dimension. Um, uh, as I talk about in the book, um, previously it was asymptomatic in a large number of people with the original um, uh, COVID-19. And so we, if you didn't have people around you that were seriously affected, if, if they were asymptomatic or, or 
you know, had mild illness, um, it was very easy to say this isn't real. real. Um, with what we're seeing with the Delta variant being so transmissible and so much more deadly, um, I think it's a whole new ball game. And so I do uh, think that we will start to see um, some folks who maybe originally thought this was just uh, political, um, government and media trying to good story to recognize this is a real dire emergency. The, the point is, though, how soon that will happen and how many have to uh, die or be very sick or be long haulers before that determination um, is made. So um, I, I think I saw that there was a very conservative talk show host who has changed tune uh, because they had COVID and they're worried about you know, their children can't come see them in the hospital. So I think we're gonna see that among healthcare workers who are taking a position right now for political reasons um, and so forth. And if it's okay, Brian, I'd like to um, move from the political piece though to tell those who are moving forward uh, with uh, vaccine mandates, or even if you're considering and it's still uh, you know, a on a voluntary basis, what I have found to be effective in working with people who are truly vaccine hesitant, and that's where I would concentrate your energy. Um, when it becomes politicized, it's much harder to uh, get over that cognitive dissonance where people are not gonna hear what they want to hear. So what I have been uh, telling individuals is kind of that same four message as everyone else has. Um, number one, uh, the Delta variant is very deadly. Uh, we're on a time clock. Uh, Lambda is also evolving. So, it, you know, it's, it's not just Delta and that what they're calling Delta plus. So this is very, very serious um, because we don't have enough people vaccinated um, because it's seasonal. And even though we're seeing huge increases now about October, November, uh, we're going to have that. One thing that people are forgetting to mention is that uh, the immunity that we have, which isn't Delta isn't uh, necessarily a protect, uh, we're not protected if we've already had COVID from Delta, but we still have some natural immunity in our body, um, is usually six to 12 months at the most. And if we think about the seasonality and when most people who currently have that protection in place will lose that protection, it's about the same time that we're going to have seasonality change. Um, and so I think when people start to think about uh, the perfect storm that's coming with Delta, with seasonality, with the low vaccination rate, um, and with um, concerns about people losing their natural immunity. They, they really start to think about that. I also reinforce the fact that the, the emergency use audition plus pro process, which most people are not familiar with that, um, how safe it is and how many people have been vaccinated and how safe it is, especially in comparison with other medications. Um, the other thing that I think has been really persuasive is to help them understand how variants work. I, I, I found for a lot of nurses and others that they really, um, that's, that's one of the things that maybe even though they know science, they didn't understand before. The other piece that I would encourage them to, to uh, recommend to those who are vaccine hesitant or ask frankly, the best um, people are to have fellow nurses who have been vaccinated, had a, a good experience to be honest that yes, I didn't feel well for a couple of days. I, my arm hurt for weeks, you know, whatever we might expect so that they're not, um, you know, promising it's a magic 
pill because it's, you know, it's not a magic bullet, but it's the closest we have. But the other thing is to be very empathetic and understand that, especially among young women, um, they have heard that they might be infertile if they take this vaccine. Um, and that's a very scary thing for a young woman. So I think being prepared to help them understand that that's not a true risk, um, helping them to work through if they need to, the, the studies that demonstrate, you know, that supposedly demonstrate that's a risk, that those are, are been debunked. Um, and then bringing them back to the mission and purpose for why they became a nurse, a doctor, or working for a healthcare organization, the mission that they all share, and how badly they would feel if they were the person who brought that to a patient um, or brought something home to those they love. Um, and that when we have something so safe, so effective, um, and they're dedicating their life to serving these patients, um, you know, those are medically fragile. A lot of say, well, we work with kids. And so, you know, obviously adults have that changed that. But if you're in a neonatal unit, um, none of those babies have been able to be vaccinated. Um, and from what we've seen in India and other places, Delta doesn't distinguish based on age nearly as much as, as um, the other variations. Um, and then uh, I guess I would certainly encourage them to also consider um, permissible incentives. There's a lot of guidance now that's come down even since the book that talks about what those would be. Um, incentives have been shown to, to work um, both publicly and then those within organizations. Um, so definitely utilize incentives. Um, try to find out why. Uh, one of the things I recommended in the book, and again, it was before we've had some of these latest things happening, is that we really need to involve the stakeholders in the discussion. So why is it that you're concerned? Um, and try to be responsive to those issues and to engage them. Ultimately, you may not be able to convince some of your people. And then the question is, you know, what are the next steps? Is there a disciplinary process? Um, are they going to just have to subject themselves to more things? Um, but hopefully this will really reassure and give, uh, there's a ton of research out there on vaccine hesitancy that your staff can use. Um, and uh, that will help to overcome not even the legal piece, but perception is reality. And in order for us to enforce what we legally can do as, as hospitals and healthcare providers dedicated to helping serve patients and others, this is really what we need to do. Denise, uh, thank you so much for providing such an enlightening and informative discussion today. Uh, and I think that uh, the viewers of this podcast are going to be uh, very well uh, informed and prepared going into uh, their next steps from having observed this. Uh, well, and as we speak today, I'm sure that uh, there's some new uh, developments. It's a moving target, um, as you and I both have talked about. Um, and so um, AHLA is going to continue to add um, new developments um, to their website. Um, so be sure to continue to watch those too. And um, thank you so much, Brian, for, for taking the time to, uh, to visit with me today. Uh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.
www.thepeopleshow.org.